What an emotional roller coaster. I'm drained and I don't know who to trust. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook, and today's podcast is all about the first half of May's book, Norwegian Wood by Haruki Murakami, published in 1987. So, the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book in two equal halves. On the second Friday of the month, I'll share my thoughts and hopefully yours on the first half of the book maybe make a few predictions. And when we finish reading the book, I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month. We'll decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book, or you can do neither, of course, and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you, but be aware there may be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel, or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to the end of chapter six, which is page 166 in my copy. So we start off with the narrator. He's 37 and he's flying into Hamburg and he hears Norwegian wood on the plane speaker and it gives him a piercing headache. It causes him to reflect on, quote, times gone forever, friends who had died or disappeared, feelings I would never know again. So I don't know whether you know, but Norwegian Wood is a song about a girl who leaves a boy by the Beatles, John Lennon. Could this song be triggering that memory? I like the way that Murakami in the first page is drawing from other art forms in his work. And all throughout the first half, we do have these references to music a lot. Going on, the narrator, who I assume is a man, was in love with a girl called Nauko when he was around 19. And it's taking longer and longer for him to recall her face. Quote, which is why I'm writing this book. To think, to understand, it just happens to be the way I'm made. I have to write things down to feel I fully comprehend them. The narrator describes a well in the field he was in with Nauko. He obviously went for a trip. Quote, it lay precisely on the border where the meadow ended and the woods began, a dark opening in the earth, a yard across, hidden by the meadow grass. Nothing marked its perimeter, no fence, no stone curb, at least not one that rose above ground level. It was nothing but a hole, a mouth open wide. The stones of its collar had been weathered and turned a strange muddy white. They were cracked and had chunks missing, and a little green lizard slithered into an open seam. You could lean over the edge and peer down to see nothing. All I knew about the well was its frightening depth. It was deep beyond measuring, and crammed full of darkness, as if all the world's darknesses had been boiled down to their ultimate destiny. Those strange muddy white stones are definitely teeth. What is this going to swallow up? I remember a well from the Wind Up Bird Chronicles. I wonder if this is a recurrent symbol in his work. Wells maybe representing hidden depths. Going on, they talk of how no one knows where the well is, and how... If you fell into it, it would be a terrible way to die. Nauko says, quote, The best thing would be to break your neck, but you'd probably just break your leg and then you couldn't do a thing. You'd yell at the top of your lungs, but nobody would hear you. And you couldn't expect anybody to find you. And you'd have centipedes and spiders crawling all over you. And the bones of the ones who died before are scattered all around you. And it's dark and soggy. And way overhead, there's this tiny, tiny circle of light, like a winter moon. You die there in this place, little by little, all by yourself. Yuck, says the narrator. Just thinking about it makes my flesh creep. Somebody should find the thing and build a wall around it. I think it's interesting that the narrator says build a wall about it. I think it'd be better to fill it in. He obviously really likes this well, or the idea of these hidden depths. The sensible thing, fill it in, definitely. And Naoko says... Quote, when I'm really close to you like this, I'm not the least bit scared. Nothing dark or evil could ever tempt me. That answers that, I said. All you have to do is stay with me like this all the time. Naoko thinks it would be wrong for the narrator to stay with me like this all the time in order to stop evil temptation. And then they walk through a pine wood. I wonder if that's a Norwegian wood. So we find out the narrator is called Toru. And Naoko says to Toru, quote, promise you'll never forget me. What a weighty promise. And the chapter ends with Toru saying, quote, Naoko never loved me. So we go back in time. Toru is now 18. He's a freshman 
He's staying at a right-wing dormitory where the national flag is raised every morning by Nakano and, quote, uniform. Stormtrooper is his flatmate and he keeps everything really, really clean in his room, although most of the rooms are disgustingly filthy. Let's listen to this, quote... The filth of these all-male rooms was horrifying. Mouldy mandarin orange skins clung to the bottoms of waste baskets. Empty cans used for ashtrays held mounds of cigarette butts. And when these started to smoulder, they'd be doused with coffee or beer and left to give off a sour stink. Blackish grime and bits of indefinable matter clung to all the bowls and dishes on the shelves. And the floors were littered with ramen wrappers and empty beer cans and lids from one thing or another quite disgusting going on stormtrooper is a geography student he wants to make maps and he has an annoying habit of waking up every morning at 6 30 with radio calisthenics which i looked up and it's sort of an exercise routine over the radio and it wakes up toro every morning at this really early time the narrator notes that naoko is beginning to lose a lot of weight and i wonder if that signals the decline in her mental health naoko and toro meet and they don't say much. Naoko says, quote, it's like I'm split in two and playing tag with myself when she can't express what she wants to say. And I was just thinking maybe this is an expression of Naoko's split personality. I wonder if this will manifest itself later. And although they travel a long distance together, it's actually a large arc. Quote, she turned right at Idebashi, came out of the moat, crossed the intersection at Jinpocho, climbed the hill at Achomonito, and came out at Hongo. From there, she followed the trolley tracks to Komagome. It was a challenging route. By the time we reached Komagome, the sun was sinking and the day had become a soft spring evening. So they don't seem to travel very very far into each other's minds there's very little communication but they do travel long distances so my thoughts on the book so far are it's very beautiful but very antiseptic lots of teenage angst and the idea of misunderstanding we have this build-up with no payoff it's like the well that is not found it's like the long journey that doesn't really go anywhere it's like the flag raising ritual that uniform is involved in and stormtrooper it doesn't really have any purpose it reminds me so much of youth the sort of expectation of things that ultimately don't happen going on with the narrative we're introduced to class and nako goes to a refined girls high school This is the narrator speaking as a 14-year-old. Quote, The girls she brought were always pretty, but a little too refined for my taste. I got along better with the somewhat cruder girls from my own public high school, who were easier to talk to. I could never tell what was going on inside the pretty heads of the girls that Naoko brought along, and they probably couldn't understand me either. Kazuki, it seems, is Toro's only true friend. Quote, He had a rare talent for finding the interesting parts of someone's generally uninteresting comments, so that when speaking to him, you felt like you were an exceptionally interesting person with an exceptionally interesting life. Kazuki commits suicide, and Toro contemplates this. Quote, Death exists not as the opposite, but as part of life. Translated into words, it's a cliche, but at the time I felt it not as words, but as that knot of air inside me. Death exists in a paperweight in four red and white balls on a billiard table, and we go on living and breathing it into our lungs like fine dust. Until that time, I had understood death as something entirely separate from and independent of life. The hand of death is bound to take us, I had felt, but until the day it reaches out for us, it leaves us alone. This has seemed to me the simple, logical truth. Life is here, death is over there. I am here, not over there. The night Kazuki died, however, I lost the ability to see death and life in such simple terms. Death was not the opposite of life. It was already here, within my being. It had always been here, and no struggle would permit me to forget that. When it took the 17-year-old Kazuki that night in May, death took me as well, he goes on. Those were strange days now that I look back at them. In the midst of life, everything revolved around death. It's interesting how I could feel something like this approaching in the novel. There's such a gloom and this sort of stasis, inertia, unreleased teenage angst. We've also gone back in time again. So we started with Toro, who was 37, then he was 19, then he's 17, and now he's 14. It's like we're slipping down the well, a sort of a well of time. Continuing with the narrative, we have more walking with Naoko. Toru now turns 19. He tells Naoko that he's never been in love and Toru befriends this clever 
posh, rich, aloof Nagasawa, who is, I think, bad news for him. And he goes womanising with this boy called Nagasawa. He meets Hatsumi, who's Nagasawa's girlfriend, and she seems nice enough. And then we have this lovely scene with Naoko. She makes him gloves as a present, and there's some lovely detail here. Quote, For Christmas, I bought Naoko a Henry Mancini record with a track of her favourite, Dear Heart. I wrapped it myself and added a bright red ribbon. She gave me a pair of woollen gloves that she had knitted herself. The thumbs were a little short, but the gloves did keep my hands warm. Oh, I'm sorry, she said, blushing. What a bad job. Don't worry, they fit me fine, I said, holding my gloved hands out to her. I really like that little detail of the gloves. Thumbs not fitting. It's maybe he and Naoko don't quite fit. There's some more making fun of poor Stormtrooper. I really feel sorry for this character. He is the butt of so many jokes. He's now wearing a funny jumper. And Naoko stays up and talks incessantly with Toru, then breaks down in tears. And Toru sleeps with Naoko. He feels guilt that he may have hurt her. And then Naoko leaves Tokyo and Toru writes to her. There's a university strike. And then Toru begins drinking. He writes again to Naoko saying, I need to know if I've hurt you. Naoko finally writes back saying that she's mentally unwell and has gone to a retreat and that he is not to blame. Quote, you are not the one who hurt me. I myself am the one who did that. This is truly how I feel. It's interesting that they're writing letters to each other, not texting each other. It feels really modern, but then you've got this writing of letters, which is really quaint. Then Stormtrooper gives Toru a present of a firefly, and these fireflies and butterflies seem to be a bit of a symbol throughout the novel. Quote, The firefly made a faint glow in the bottom of the jar, its light too weak, its colour too pale. I hadn't seen a firefly in years, but the ones in my memory sent a far more intense light into the summer darkness, and that brilliant burning image was the one that had stayed with me all that time. Maybe this firefly was on the verge of death. I gave the jar a few shakes. The firefly bumped against the glass walls and tried to fly but its light remained dim. I think the fact that he comments on the firefly being close to death is going to be very important. Toro recalls seeing fireflies near a pool of water. Quote, I could hear the sound of water in the darkness and see an old-fashioned brick sluice. It had a handle you could turn to open and close the gate. The stream it controlled was small enough to be hidden by the grass on its banks. The night was dark, so dark I couldn't see my feet when I turned out my flashlight. Hundreds of fireflies drifted over the pool of water held back by the sluice gate. Their hot glow reflected in the water like a shower of sparks. I just love that writing. It really reminds me of the opening scene with that well. And both are holding back large bodies of water. There's this mysteriousness. It's kind of dark, the uncharted depths. Again, an important symbol, I think, in this novel. Toro releases the firefly. And again, I've, I wrote in the margins, does this firefly foreshadow the release of Naoko's soul? I've got a bad feeling about this. <laughs> Continuing the narrative, we have this college protest which is now beginning to end and Stormtrooper doesn't actually return to college. He bumps into, this is Tora, he bumps into a girl called Midori in a restaurant and she borrows his notes. He, she's a fellow student. And they arrange to meet at midday in two days' time but she unfortunately does not show up. He calls up the bookshop where she lives and a man says she's in hospital. He writes to Narco saying... I miss you. And then a few days later, Midori and him meet in class. And Midori says to Toro, look, I'm really sorry I didn't turn up. And Toro says, why didn't you turn up? And she says, I had to go to hospital. And Toro says, why? And she says, I'll tell you later. At this point in the novel, I'm kind of feeling it's a bit lacklustre, a bit slow. Toro seems a bit self-absorbed and, quote, cool. I'm not really enjoying it that much. I do like certain sections like the description of the fireflies and the sluice, the water. Tora seems so interesting to other people. For example, Midori, and I can't quite see why. He seems just a boring character to me. I don't know why everyone thinks he's so fascinating. Continuing the narrative, Midori and Toru meet up, and Midori talks a lot. Very, very different to Nako. 
constant chatter. She invites him over for lunch and he seems to objectify her quite a lot. Quote, she wore slim blue jeans and a navy t-shirt and Apple Records logo nearly covered the back of the shirt. She had incredibly narrow hips as if she had somehow skipped the growth stage in which the hips are solidified. And this gave her a far more neutral look than most girls have in slim jeans. The light pouring in from the kitchen window gave her shape a kind of vague outline. And I get the feeling that Toro does this a lot, especially with female characters. He is very interested in what they look like. And she cooks him all this amazing food. And then, after that, he manages to criticise her. (laughs) Quote, Chin in hand, she smoked half her cigarette, then crushed it out in an ashtray. She rubbed her eyes as if smoke had gotten into them. Girls are supposed to be a little more elegant when they put their cigarettes out. You did that like a lumberjack. This is Torres speaking. You shouldn't just cram it down in the ashtray, but press it lightly around the edges of the ash. Then it doesn't get all bent up. And girls are never supposed to blow smoke through their noses. And most girls wouldn't talk about how they wore the same bra for three months when they're eating alone with a man. Talk about expectations, how you should behave being a girl. And for a novel that is actually trying to show how expectations can be a problem he has got a lot of expectations of what a girl should do but she likes him that's a strange thing quote but i like talking to you the way you talk is so unusual i don't like having something control me that way she was referring to a cigarette and the fact that he didn't complain apart from the fact that he says girls don't smoke marlboros (laughs) and then she says what's the difference one tastes as bad as another so 80s smoking writing letters, finding out what people's phone numbers are. It's very dated. It's interesting going on. This character, to me, seems like a bit of a male fantasy figure. He's a bit of a slob, in my opinion, but he's so attractive to women. Or is that just me? Maybe I've got this wrong. I'd love your opinions. I really would like you to to let me know what you think. And then she talks about the fact that her father's gone to Uruguay and that he was not particularly nice when her mother died. Quote, and this is her speaking. What do you think he said to my sister and me when our mother died? I would much rather have lost the two of you than her. It knocked the wind out of me. I couldn't say a word. You know what I mean? You just can't say something like that. Okay, he lost the woman he loved, his partner for life. I understand the pain, the sadness, the heartbreak. I pity him, but you don't tell the daughters you fathered. Quote, you should have died in her place. I mean, that's just too terrible. Don't you agree? Yeah, I see your point, says Toro. Again, always... Very, very short response from Toro. That's one wound that will never go away, she said, shaking her head. But anyhow, everybody in my family is a little different. We've all got something just a little bit strange. So it seems, I said. Still, it is wonderful for two people to love each other, don't you think? I mean, for a man to love his wife so much, he can tell his daughters they should have died in her place. Would she really reveal that to a relative stranger, I'm thinking? Continuing the narrative, they watch passively as a fire breaks out in a neighbouring flat. And Torres says, quote, were you loved enough by your parents? And Midori says, somewhere between not enough and not at all. I was always hungry for love. Just once I wanted to know what it was like to get my fit of it, to be fed so much love I couldn't take any more. Just once, but they never gave that to me. Never, not once. If I tried to cuddle up and beg for something, they'd just shove me away and yell at me. No, that costs too much. And Midori says she's looking for, quote, selfishness. And here's the quote. No, and this is Midori speaking, even I know better than that. I'm looking for selfishness, perfect selfishness. Like, say I tell you I want to eat strawberry shortcake and you stop everything you're doing and run out and buy it for me. And you come back out of breath and get down on your knees and hold this strawberry shortcake out to me. And I say I don't want it anymore and throw it out the window. That's what I'm looking for, Tori says. I'm not sure that has anything to do with love. It does, says Midori. You just don't know it. There are times in a girl's life when things like that are incredibly important. Again, we've got in a girl's life. She has a very strong identity with what she believes is girl behaviour. And this gender identity is throughout the first half. And I think maybe it's just a dated book. This is 34 years old, 1987. I think things have changed for the better. Continuing the narrative, they kiss, and Midori says that she does have a boyfriend. Again, there are many cultural references. We've got music and books on every page. The narrative continues with Toru going out to try and find girls with Nakasawa. 
And this is, quote, the typical, this is my quotes, the typical male gaze, very judgmental of women. Quote, one of the girls was on the large side. She wore a grey parka and white jeans, carried a big vinyl pocketbook and had on big shell-shaped earrings. Her friend was a small girl with glasses. She wore a blue cardigan over a check shirt and had a blue turquoise ring. The smaller one seemed to have a habit of taking her glasses off and pressing her eyes with her fingertips. He's approached again without doing anything, quote... Clutching her shoulder bag to her breast, the smaller girl went off to the ladies' room, at which point her companion spoke to me, i.e. Toru. I'm sorry to bother you, but I wonder if you might know of any bars in the neighbourhood that would be still serving drinks, she goes on. I know this is asking a lot, but could you come with us? Two girls alone really can't do something like that. And what a surprise, he ends up sleeping with the girl. Continuing the narrative, we have a letter from Naoko... Quote, I led you round in circles. And she literally did at the beginning of the book. At the end of the letter, she describes her life in the sanatorium. And she mentions how, quote, things may have been different if they were both normal and Kazuki had not killed himself. The death of Kazuki obviously has affected her profoundly. Toro, at this point in the narrative, is reading Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. And if you've read it, you'll know how relevant it is to this book. He calls the sanatorium, called Ami Hotel, and arranges a visit. So he takes the bus to Kyoto and he chats with a fellow patient, a music teacher called Reiko, at the sanatorium. Reiko is Neiko's roommate. Quote, I've been here seven years. I work as a music teacher and help out in the office. So it's hard to tell anymore whether I'm a patient or staff. Now, it really reminds me of the Magic Mountain. The idea that there's a blurring of patients and doctors. So, Toru asks Reiko, how is Naiko? And she says, quote, She was pretty confused at first and we had our doubts for a while, but she's calmed down now and she's improved to where she's able to express herself verbally. She's definitely headed in the right direction, but she should have gotten treatment a lot earlier than she did. Her symptoms were already showing up from the time that boyfriend of hers, Kazuki, killed himself. Her family should have seen it and she herself should have realised that something was wrong. Of course, things weren't right at home either. They weren't? Toro shot back. You didn't know? Reiko seemed even more surprised than I was. I shook my head. That's Toru. I'd better let Naoko tell you about that herself. So we've got two potential reasons for why she's mentally unwell. She's upset by the suicide and she's got a problem with her home life. But I'm sure it's not that simple. So let's see. Toru tells Reiko that he's not sure he should have slept with Naoko. Quote, I still don't know whether what I did to Naoko in Tokyo was the right thing to do or not. I've been thinking about it this whole time, but I still don't know. And neither do I, said Reiko. And neither does Naoko. That's something the two of you will have to decide for yourselves. See what I mean? Whatever happened, the two of you can turn it in the right direction. If you can reach some kind of mutual understanding. Maybe, once you've gotten that taken care of, you can go back and think about whether what happened was the right thing or not. I went back to the scene with Naoko and Toru where they made love and there was no yes or no, there was no conversation at all. As ever, there was no talking. Reiko has out of the blue this confrontational rape question and I've put in the margin, does she suspect him? of being that type of person. Quote, and this is Reiko speaking, I don't suppose you're going to come in and rape us in the middle of the night. Tora says, don't be silly. Reiko says, so there's no problem then. Stay in our place and we can have some nice long talks. Reiko explains you can't leave the sanatorium. Quote, each person is completely free to leave this place, but once you've left, you can't come back. You burn your bridges. You can't go off for a couple of days in town and expect to come back. It only stands to reason, though, everybody would be coming and going. So I guess you can leave the sanatorium, but it's just if you do, that's it. You can't come back. I guess that's a subtle Hotel California reference. It does sound like a hotel. It's got tennis courts. It does sound like a really nice place. Toro waits for Naoko and daydreams a torrent of memories. It reminds me of the sluice where he saw the fireflies, the sluice that opened and let all the water through. He sleeps again. Quote, 
sleeping soundly in this apartment of hers. I wrung the fatigue from every cell of my body, drop by drop. I dreamed of a butterfly dancing in the half-light. Butterflies and fireflies, a very important symbol, all the way through this. The flittering reminds me of those fireflies, as I say, or brief-lifed creatures flitting. We've already seen Kazuki, he had a brief life, snubbed out, and... We've got the barrette, the thing that Naoko wears in her hair. That's a butterfly. The author references the Magic Mountain again. Now with the author's name attribution, which I think is quite interesting. The author is trying to say, I think, quote, I promise, and this is my, this is my interpretation of the author, I promise I'm not writing a modern version of the Magic Mountain for you. And I, Roger, am saying, Kazuo Ishiguro, prove it to me. Anyway, going forward, Toro continues bullying Stormtrooper even when he's not around. Quote, Reiko asked who this Stormtrooper person was, so I told her about his antics and got a big laugh from her. The world was at peace and filled with laughter as long as stories of Stormtrooper were being told. Poor Stormtrooper. He eats with Toru and Naoko in the dining hall. And I've just had a thought about the opening chapter. I wonder if she will fall down a well. <laughs> it might be a bit far-fetched. <laughs> Is that the tragedy that will unfold? Will she accidentally fall down that well? I hope she does. She's kind of annoying. I don't really mean that. Um, by single candlelight, Reiko plays the guitar, including Norwegian wood. And Toro mentions Nagasawa, but not, quote, hunting girls with him. Naka thinks sleeping with so many girls is abnormal and that he should be in the sanatorium and he tells her he was upset with her relationship with Kazuki so that's why he slept with so many girls eight or nine girls this again is a very private conversation to be having with Reiko listening on they seem to be very open with their thoughts and feelings Naiko in front of Reiko goes on about how she wasn't quote, turned on, they're my words, by Kazuki, but she was turned on by Toru. She goes into great detail, which I can't say on this podcast. She talks of how she and Kazuki were close since the age of three, almost brother and sister. She talks about when she had her first menstruation, she runs to him. I'm thinking, was Naoko so upset at their lovemaking? Because just as she had her first kiss with Kazuki, she also wanted to have her first sexual experience with Kazuki, but Toru took her virginity. So maybe that's partly why she's upset. Reiko steps in when Naoko starts to cry. She says, Toru, go for a 20-minute walk on your own. And so he does so. Reiko recounts her dreams of being a concert pianist with Dash, so she had a mental breakdown. Quote, I spent day after day in the house teaching neighbourhood children Bayer exercises and sonatas. I felt so miserable, I cried all the time to think what I had missed. And I think point of view is really important. Managing expectation is really important. Putting it another way, I celebrated with my wife when this podcast got 50 downloads. Some would say that is no reason to celebrate. But it's all about managing your expectations. You know, what are your expectations? Anyway... Reiko met a man, but she said she couldn't marry him. Quote, He wanted to know what those reasons were, so I explained everything to him with complete honesty that I had been hospitalised twice for mental breakdowns. I told him everything, what the cause had been, my condition and the possibility that it could happen again. And I'm thinking, what was the cause? We will find out. Continuing the narrative, she does actually end up marrying him. Quote, he fought with his parents over me and they disowned him. He was from an old family that lived in rural part of Shikoku. They had my background investigated and found out that I had been hospitalised twice. No wonder they opposed the marriage. But she has kids and is happy. But then she takes on this clever and beautiful student. Quote, a pathological liar. She was sick, pure and simple. She made up everything. And while she was making up her stories, she would come to believe them. And then she would change things around her to fit her story. She had such a quick mind, she could always keep a step ahead of you and take care of things that would ordinarily strike you as odd. So it would never cross your mind that she was lying. Does this remind you of any character, maybe, in the last podcast we looked at? Yep, 
I think this is basically Kathy from East of Eden. I wonder if Kazuo Ishiguro was reading the book at the time, along with the Magic Mountain. It's such an old chestnut, that trope of this evil woman who is beautiful and is a liar, this time articulated by a female character to give it maybe some more credence. I don't know. This Reiko sounds very disturbed. First, she says the old cliche, quote, I was going to be a concert pianist. And then she says, quote, I had no special talent when talking of this to the student. Quote, I had no special talent, but I must have had something that drew her to me, something that was missing in her, I would guess, which must have been what got her interested in me to begin with. I believe that now, looking back, and I'm not boasting. Very strange thing to be saying about the student. I really don't think any character in this book can be trusted. And maybe that's the point. So her student tries to please, quote, she was not the kind of person who quietly goes about doing things for herself. This was a child who would make detailed calculations to use every means at her disposal to impress other people. She knew exactly what she had to do to make people admire and praise her, and she knew exactly what kind of performance it would take to draw me in. She had calculated everything, I'm sure, and put everything she had into practising the most important passages over and over again for my benefit. I can see her doing it. Still, even now, after all this came clear to me, I believe it was a wonderful performance and I would feel the same chills down my spine if I could hear it again. Knowing all I know about her flaws, her cunning and lies, I would still feel it. I'm telling you there are such things in this world. I'm telling you there are such things in this world. That really reminds me of John Steinbeck saying, I believe there are monsters born to human parents when talking about Cathy, don't you think? I'm thinking, doesn't every child try to please their teacher and the adults around them? This is natural. This is not unnatural. But then she is in uh, a mental institution, so she can be forgiven, I guess. Continuing the narrative, Toro says that he wants to, quote, hear more about you to Naoko. And then he brings up the subject of Kazuki. I think that's a bit insensitive, since Kazuki could be an emotive subject. Remember, she's a hospital but perhaps he's following Reiko's advice of, quote, mutual help. So Naoko has an opportunity to say how close she was to Kazuko. Are you ready for this? I don't think I am, but I'm going to read it. Quote, Our boy-girl relationship was really unusual too. It was as if we were physically joined somewhere. If we happened to be apart, some special gravitational force would pull us back together again. It was the most natural thing in the world when we became boyfriend and girlfriend. It was nothing we had to think about or make any choices about. Continue the narrative. Toro was Kazuki and Naoko's link to the outside world. It's interesting and peculiar that Kazuki and Naoko's relationship is highlighted as being sexual rather than anything else, for example, spiritual or intellectual or physical or any other connecting attribute. Why is this? Please tell me. I don't really know why. Continuing on, they have fun by taking the mick out of Stormtrooper again. And Reiko, quote, did imitations of mental patients. That was a lot of fun. Interestingly... Reiko repeats the rape comment. Quote, If you feel like raping anybody in the middle of the night, don't get the wrong one, said Reiko. The unwrinkled body in the left bed is Naoko's. Liar, says Naoko, mine's the right bed. And Naoko here is a willing player in that kind of, quote, joke. Is there some secret fear that Reiko is harbouring? Or is it just the author wants you to keep thinking about sexual power play in the situation? He better have a good reason or else I'll be very disappointed. Giving him the benefit of the doubt, wonder if the Japanese is more nuanced. Maybe it's something along the lines of cuddle. I'm giving a massive benefit of the doubt here to the author. But I'd be interested to know if any of you speak Japanese and have read the Japanese version of the novel. Continuing the narrative, Toru wakes from a dream of metal birds that crash to the ground. Here, I guess, metal birds represent the inversion of freedom, usually Birds are flying away. These ones are crashing to the ground. Toro sleeps, but he wakes to see Naoko staring at the moon. And she's wearing the butterfly barrette. Again, symbolising this fleeting life, but also perhaps sexual availability, question mark, I'm not sure. The butterfly barrette is replaced. It wasn't there before. Quote, revealing the beauty of her face in the moonlight. And now we are whacked over the head with Naoko as butterfly metaphor. Are you ready for this? Quote, 
Naoko stayed frozen in place like a small nocturnal animal that had been lured out by the moonlight. The direction of the glow exaggerated the silhouette of her lips, seeming utterly fragile and vulnerable. The silhouette pulsed almost imperceptibly with the beating of her heart or the motions of her inner heart, as if she were whispering soundless words to the darkness. Continuing on... Naoko slipped the gown from her shoulders and threw it off completely like an insect shedding its skin. Continuing on. The flesh had been through many changes to be reborn in utter perfection beneath the light of the moon. After her butterfly parade, they go to bed and Toro can't sleep. So Naoko finds herself in another dependent relationship, this time with Reiko as opposed to Kazuki. The next day, they both go to feed birds in the birdhouse. Quote, spotting Reiko, the birds started chattering and flying about inside the cage. It's interesting that they spotted Reiko and not all three of them. I guess if they spotted Naoko, they would have turned to metal and crashed to the floor. And then we've got another talking parrot joke. I wonder if Murakami has just read East of Eden again. Continuing on, they all go for a mountain walk out of the sanatorium. And this section really reminds me of Hans Castorp in The Magic Mountain when he goes off for a long wander in the hills. They end up in a bar and Reiko says... You two go off on your own for a bit. It's against the rules, but I don't care. And they have a little chat on their own, Naoko and Toru. And Naoko says she has nightmares. Quote, I feel like Kazuki is reaching out for me from the darkness, calling to me. Hey, Naoko, we can't stay apart. When I hear him saying that, I don't know what to do. And then Naoko gives Toru sexual relief and tells him he must wait before he can make love to her. And then she talks of her dead sister who was killed at 17 by suicide, like Kazuki. Naoko talks about how she discovered her sister's body. Quote, I just stood there spacing out for maybe five or six minutes, a total blank, like something inside me had died. I just stayed that way with my sister in that cold, dark place. This really reminds me of the well at the opening of the novel. And Tora says, look, I'll protect you from, quote, the dark and from bad dreams. And Naoko says that would be wonderful. The narrative continues and Reiko and Toru end up alone together. And Reiko tells Toru how she had a sexual experience with one of her young students. She slapped the student, feeling disgusted with her, and she refused to teach her again. But after that experience, rumours started to abound this is Reiko speaking about the girl. Quote, The girl was rotten inside. Peel off a layer of that beautiful skin and you'd find nothing but rotten flesh. I know it's a terrible thing to say, but it's true. And I knew that ordinary people could never know the truth about her. That there was no way we could win. She was expert at manipulating the emotions of the adults around her. And we had nothing to prove our case. First of all, who's going to believe that a 13-year-old girl set a homosexual trap for a woman in her 30s? No matter what we said, people would believe what they wanted to believe. She ended up divorcing her husband. And then her and Toro go back. Naoko can't sleep, so they have a little snuggle. And then Toro goes back to Tokyo. And there ends the first half. So, a lot to think about. Questions that I have written down. Here goes. What will become of Naoko? Will she die? I think she might die. I don't know whether she's going to die in a well. I think that's a bit far-fetched. But I think maybe some suicide or something. Will more of Toru's past be revealed? I doubt it. He seems a very private person. I don't think a huge amount is going to be revealed. I would like to know a bit more about Torres past, though. We know about a lot of the other characters. Why was Midori in hospital? Is she ill? That is an interesting question. Will Reiko's strange don't-rate-me comments become clearer? Probably. I'm hoping it will. We might not even meet Reiko again. I don't know. Will Toru and Midori become the perfect couple with hints of Naoko in the background? Possibly. I think they may end up together. Will Toru continue to command magical admiration from females? That is without a doubt. Of course he will. And will there be more kind of male gaze, him studying women and talking about what they look like? Yes, definitely. And will Stormtrooper continue to be the butt of many jokes? Yes, I'm sure he will be in the second part of the book. Okay, so a few really interesting ideas to come out of this book. 
So, first, there's a lot of Toru feeding lines to characters so that they can go on a big monologue, and it happens all the time. Kazuki visiting Naoko in hospital, Naoko ends up talking for ages about Kazuki, and this is not natural dialogue. There's never any hidden depths in the book, they just say what they feel. The theme or the idea of expectations and correctly managing them, I think is really important. Reiko, for example, not being a concert pianist, it almost destroys her. And then Reiko's husband's parents had high expectations of him, but, but he didn't meet the expectations. Here's an interesting quote where Naoko is talking of Kazuki's expectations. Quote, I've got to do that. I've got to change this. He was always thinking right up to the end. Poor Kazuki always wanted to change things. And there's another quote. This is when Reiko is playing the guitar. Quote, softly humming the melody, she did a full rendition of Scarborough Fair. The three of us applauded and Reiko responded with a decorous bow of the head. She says, I used to get more applause for a Mozart concerto. How sad is that? That all your friends are going, yeah, well done. You played that beautifully on the guitar. And you're just thinking, oh, yeah, but I used to get more applause when I played a Mozart concerto. That's selfish and so self-indulgent. The next idea, fireflies and butterflies appear a lot in this first half. Naoko's barrette, quote, I was ready to sleep with him, said Naoko, unclasping her barrette and letting her hair down. She toyed with the butterfly shape in her hands. And then we've got this flickering candle in Naoko's room. Again, a flickering of the firelights, the flickering of the candle. Quote, as the three of us sat facing the candle amid these hushed surroundings, it began to seem as if we were the only ones left on some far edge of the world. The still shadows of the moonlight and the swaying shadows of the candlelight met and melded on the white walls of the apartment. And then we've got that interesting reference to Jay Gatsby. Quote, where the road sloped upward beyond the trees, I sat and looked toward the building where Narco lived. It was easy to tell which room was hers. All I had to do was find the one window toward the back where a faint light trembled. I focused on that point of light for a long, long time. It made me think of something like that final throb of a soul's dying embers. I wanted to cut my hands over what was left and keep it alive. I went on watching it the way Jay Gatsby watched the tiny light on the opposite shore night after night. Another interesting idea that happens all the way through is Toro being fascinating to women. There are so many examples, but I started sort of recording them about a quarter of the way in. Here's proof that he's not particularly interesting. Don't get mad, but really, though, what are you good at? And Toro says, nothing special. <laughs> Naoko says she slept with him because he is, quote, not ordinary. And then she says, I couldn't sleep with Kazuki, but I could sleep with you, <laughs> she says, when she's at the hospital. I've paraphrased that. And then we've got Reiko's inappropriate rape comments and Naoko's correction. We've got Naoko stripping for Toro. So lots of ways in which Toro is fascinating to women. Then we've got this sort of meditative, ungoal-oriented kind of equilibrium, anticlimactic feel. So we've got that not finding the well. Is it set up to be this thing that they can't find? And then we've got the huge arc that Naoko and Toro take, which leads nowhere. Toro says, quote, walking would be good for me. He doesn't say, you know, it will make me slimmer, which would indicate some goal-orientedness. Maybe I'm stretching that one. Some girls, for example, the Kazuki's funeral, don't have a cause. Why did he die? There's no build-up. We don't know. It's just happened suddenly. And I kind of like that, I guess. It's, it's different. With this idea of equilibrium, Naoko says, quote, Because we would have to pay the world back what we owed it, she said, raising her eyes to mine. The pain of growing up, we didn't pay when we should have, so now the bills are due. We have to pay back the world, says Naoko. And that's why she thinks Kazuki had to die, because they had to pay back for their love. Again, this is an interesting idea or philosophy, I think. Another theme, strong gender identification or gender stereotyping. Quote, Never again would she have that self-centred beauty that seems to take its own independent course in adolescent girls and no one else. There's loads of it. All girls write poems at that age. And then there's the women clearing out the turkey feeders. There's the idea of Reiko being a devoted wife. There's nothing about how to be a good man, for example, apart from, quote, when he came back from work, when Reiko's being a good wife. And then there's Toro being appalled at the thought of washing the girl's underwear. It's not a manly thing to do. This narrator screams expectation from his woman. And then there's this assumption that boys are stronger. 
quote, we're almost there, said Ryoko. This is about two-thirds of the way. Come on, you're a boy, aren't you? And this is when they're climbing up the mountain. So there's an awful lot of gender stereotyping. But then it's written in the 1980s. But we just need to be aware of it. Another idea is hidden things. So, for example, the well at the beginning. And then Reiko says it, quote, You haven't played a musical instrument, at least not for some years now, have you? With the first words out of her mouth. No, I said, taken aback. You're right. I can tell from your hands, she said with a smile. Again, this idea that something with meaning is hidden, you know, the idea that your ability to play an instrument is, is hidden in your hands or hidden and less revealed. I just think that's a really interesting idea. There's another example, the gatekeeper. His words hide his actual meaning. Quote, Two or three minutes went by, and then a gatekeeper in a navy blue uniform came down the forest road on a yellow bicycle. He was a tall man in his early 60s with a receding hairline. He leaned the yellow bike against the guardhouse and said, I'm very sorry to have kept you waiting, though he didn't sound sorry at all. So there seems to be a disjunct between what is on the surface and what is in the depths. They don't necessarily reveal each other. For example, Kazuki's suicide. And I just think that's very interesting. There is also an idea of this mundanity and the depth of tragedy. So we've we've got that fuel ticket that's on the windscreen when Kazuki is killing himself. It's just a little detail which is so mundane whilst this tragedy is happening. And then we've got the lazy watching of the house fire by Midori and Toru whilst this awful thing is happening. So I think that's an interesting idea too. And then we've got this very detailed, closely observed female image. I'll go through some interesting examples. In the hospital, quote, There was something almost mysterious about this woman. Her face had lots of wrinkles. These were the first thing to catch your eye, but they didn't make her look old. Instead, they emphasised a certain youthfulness in her that transcended age. The wrinkles belonged where they were, as if they had been part of her face since birth. So he's talking about Reiko there. And then Toro studying Naoko in hospital, quote, she looked healthier than before, suntanned, her body firmed up from exercise and outdoor work. Her eyes were the same deep, clear pools they had always been, and her small lips still trembled shyly, but overall her beauty had begun to change to that of a mature woman. Well, then we have Toru studying Naoko's body. Quote, Naoko wore blue jeans and a white blouse and carried her jacket in one hand. I watched her long, straight hair swaying right and left where it met her shoulders. She would glance back at me now, and then smiling when her eyes met. Anyway, it's a lot of very closely observed females in this book. Another idea, things half-used or wasted potential. So in the sanatorium, we have a lot of waste. Quote, She took the lead, hurrying down the corridor and a flight of stairs to the first floor dining hall. This is Reiko. It was a large room with enough space for perhaps 200 people, but only half was in use. The other half closed off with partitions, like a resort hotel in the off-season. And then we've got the hospital feeling empty. Quote, It's such a wide open place. These are not big numbers at all. Far from it. It might be close to say that the place is on the empty side. It's big and filled with nature and everybody lives quietly. So quietly you sometimes feel that this is the normal real world. And then Reiko, quote, you shouldn't use yourself up in some unnatural form. Do you see what I'm getting at? It would be such a waste. The years 19 and 20 are a crucial stage in the maturation of character. And if you allow yourself to become warped when you are at that age, it will cause you pain when you're older. It's true. So think about it carefully. If you want to take care of Naoko, take care of yourself. And then, of course, we've got Kazuki's life. That was half used, kind of wasted. I think that's all I really want to say about these ideas for now. I'd now like to share some of your thoughts on last month's book, East of Eden. I received some wonderful emails. Rose sent me a really interesting email about her thoughts on Kathy that I'd love to share. She writes, quote, It seems to me that Kate's number one motivation is that she doesn't want to be afraid, but because she feels so much hate for the people around her, she thinks that the only way to achieve that is to eliminate anyone that makes her feel trapped and scared. When her father punishes her in an attempt to discipline her, her reaction is to light the house on fire, gaining absolute freedom in the process. I like to think she realised then that having the freedom to make any choice you want grants you an amazing amount of power. Power she thinks she needs to protect herself from everyone else. From then on, her reaction to anyone threatening to seriously restrict her freedom seems to be a waiting game, eventually ending in murder. She wants to be able to make any choice at any time and she'll do anything to keep that power. 
That seems to me why she hates alcohol. It takes away her inhibitions and makes her say things she wants to keep quiet, taking away her choice in the matter. Fraser emailed me at bookshook at yahoo.com with his thoughts about the phrase Tim Shell. He writes, quote, The freedom described as Tim Shell is, I believe, the freedom that comes to us through forgiveness. When those we hurt or sin against forgive us, they give us space to change for the better if we trust that promise of forgiveness. In Cal's case, one may even see an answer to his earlier prayer in his father's blessing. There were some wonderful comments on the Goodreads website that these contributors have kindly allowed me to share on this podcast. Comments which I really think help put the novel into sharper focus. Frank wrote, quote, Going into the novel with the expectation of it being a retelling of Cain and Abel, at least for some of the narrative, is enough to make the obvious references to Cain and Abel seem natural. If Steinbeck had given the impression that he was trying to hide the parallel, it would have been insulting. But Steinbeck isn't trying to hide it. He makes it clear that the story of Cain and Abel are an integral part of his story. Matthew wrote, quote, It is like a high-priced, high-quality buffet with lots of different stations. In each of those stations is a main table with an awesome featured food, thick-cut prime rib, chocolate fondue fountain, Mongolian barbecue bowl. In layman's terms, there is so much awesome story here with a huge payoff every 50 pages or so. Matassin wrote... Quote, I bet this book will change how you see humanity and how you think about good and evil. If you're a father or a son, or especially a father of sons, then I imagine this story will be so full of truth, it will shake you to your core and leave you lying nervously in bed at night, praying for your children, praying perhaps for yourself. Vit wrote, quote, one of the most appropriate epithets that applies to this novel is monumental. Indeed, East of Eden stands as a monument to the entire epoch and those people that lived in those troubled days. Luca wrote, quote, you will love his way of representing hope, falsehood, sadness, and you will hate as if you were under the effect of a sick addiction the moment you finish the book. I couldn't agree more. And Dolores wrote, so many questions and no certain answers. In all his wisdom, Steinbeck exposes his high principles and allows the reader to decide for himself. The possibility to choose to pick this path or the other when we are at a crossroads is the most precious gift we are given along with life. We cannot choose to be made part of this world, of the bewildering place we seldom understand, but we can exert our goodwill and trust that others will do the same. Love might cripple us, might make us fragile and defenceless, but it is the only way to reach the end of the journey without regret or remorse. Exile can't befall on us if we dare to love. Paradise might not exist, but Steinbeck proves that loving others selflessly is a safe path to save us from ourselves. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Email bookshook at yahoo.com or leave a comment at the Bookshook YouTube channel. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages which you haven't got around to reading and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I publish part two of Norwegian Wood in two weeks, that's the 28th of May, the next month's podcast will be all about The Offing by Benjamin Myers. So get that one at the ready if you can. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the final part of Norwegian Wood at the next episode. See you then. Mm-hmm.